Scuba Obsessed, the weekly podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear to places a dive and scuba in the news. Scuba Obsessed episode 369 is recorded live May 31st, 2018. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Gilson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan, where if you fall down in my lawn, you won't be seen for a month. Joining me this week, we have Mac, the dive mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? I'm doing very well. Glad to be here. Thank you. Oh, we. how about that rain? Uh, I was coming back from Ann Arbor yesterday and uh, ran to, through at least two monsoons that you could not even see. Yeah. Well, I didn't realize, but that was part of a tropical storm and they said it's one of the first times i don't know if it made it to the official point but they were saying if that made it over lake michigan it would be the first time in recorded records where uh, a tropical storm had actually made it to lake michigan they said it wasn't Ah. they said it wasn't uncommon for them to hit uh huron erie or ontario but they had never hit lake michigan that they had known so i don't know i have a feeling this one didn't either uh i don't know at what point does does the central part of the storm have to make it over the lake or because definitely the arms were flailing around there well i'm not used to them saying tropical storm here in michigan i do know that they uh they did have that tropical storm through florida that came ashore i think monday monday or late monday and i know that went up north so maybe that curved around and influenced what we got yeah i, I was just reading an article there just uh mentioning it uh, but it wasn't much of a tropical storm even down south. It never quite made it to hurricane levels, from what I understand. Which is good. Yeah, that's okay. We don't, you know, a few less hurricanes are fine by me. Well, since my daughter lives there, I prefer them not to have that stuff anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'd like to thank everybody who's in the chat room tonight. We have Derek and Eric and Ted, if I'm getting the names right. Well, let's see. Let's go ahead and jump right on into the news. First article up is a heroic scuba diver battles a safe friend after uh, he has a equipment failure 100 feet below the surface. I won't say the exact title they had because, as as most articles about uh, scuba incidences incidences, it is wrong. <laughs> I you know, the the pe- the pet peeve is uh, oxygen tank. It's no, it's not an oxygen tank. At least in this case, we know it isn't. Uh, they said it was a uh, tense moment when a Scuba diver battled to save his friend's life after his oxygen tank failed 100 feet below the surface. Body cam footage, which I think was they probably call him that a GoPro, uh, shows Nick Burke, 37, rushing to help Matt Henderson, 39, in murky water off the coast of Perth in Western Australia. The, fen- the friends were finishing up a 30-minute fishing dive when they suddenly realized they were in trouble as Matt's gear was inexplicably failing and he was losing air fast. Uh, data to Nick's Instincts kicked in. He pulled out a spare, uh, uh, I'm not going to use what they said, regulator and propelled Matt to the surface poten- in a, a potentially deadly emergency ascent. The pair suffered uh, decompression sickness symptoms, also known as the bends, which can be fatal. We'll rush to the hospital where they spent five hours recovering in a decompression chamber. Uh, Perth 
Mining manager Nick, who had been diving for one year, said, as soon as I saw Matt rip his mask off, I knew we were in trouble. Air was coming out of his pressure gauge fast. There's not a lot of room for air at those depths, and I was fearing for both our lives. My instincts kicked in. I gave him a spare regulator that rocketed him to the surface and then rocketed him to the surface. This is where dangerous because of decompression sickness. Army veteran Matt, who has eight years of diving experience, has survived tours of Afghanistan and Iraq, but still feared for his life during the underwater drama. The operation manager in Data 1, who is also from Perth, added, when I started taking in water, I was blacking out. I thought, this is it. I'm going to die. Uh, I ripped off my mask to, to get the emergency regulator. I remember seeing shooting stars on the way up, but I don't remember much after that. I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for Nick's quick thinking. Nick said a safe ascent would have taken approximately 10 minutes, but divers were forced to rise in less than one. Miraculously, Matt's equipment failed when he was close to Nick. In the low-visibility waters, just moments before the emergency, the friends were swimming separately, meaning Matt narrowly avoided being left without his friend for life-saving air. Both pals suffered symptoms of decompression sickness known as the bends, which includes disorientation, loss of balance, and severe joint pain, as well as spending five hours in a decompression chamber on the day of the accident. They spent another three hours there the following day to shrink the gas bubbles which formed in their body's tissues. But after... Both making a full recovery, Nick now wants to promote an important safety message. He said, the adrenaline was pumping when I came up. I was pretty out of it. I was very confused, fell over a few times in the boat. By the time I got to the hospital, I was pretty ill. I think it's important to remember you need to stick close to your partner. When you're diving, it's easy to get carried away with how unbelievable everything is. But there was low visibility down there. This happened a minute earlier. When we pulled apart, Matt wouldn't have made it. Matt added, I've served in Iraq, Afghanistan, East Timor. I have had a lot of near-death situations, but nothing came close to being as scary as this. So it was the most experienced diver, the two, that, that had the, the problem. I'm still curious why they did not have bailouts. Well, and the true, if they're diving that deep, then they certainly... 30-minute dive at 100 feet with one tank? Well, I for one thing, I don't think... I mean, it doesn't say what kind of tanks they're diving... I know I certainly can't do that long of a dive on one tank without exerting myself. So it sounded like they were fishing, so they are probably spear fishing then? Um, one can imagine. It doesn't really say. And I don't see anything in his hands. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think at that situation, you're not, well, you'd hope you dropped the, the spear. Right. He had a full face mask on. If you look at the one picture, he's got a GoPro mounted to his full face. Uh-huh. So when he didn't have air... He ripped that off, and I don't see an octopus on his rig. Well, that would, that would be kind air, of... If you saw air coming out of your gauge, your gauge has got a reducer in it that you're not going to blow all your air out because right. it's got a reducer in there on purpose. So if he had no air, that's, that's something totally different. Well, we don't, again, I, I don't understand why he didn't have bailouts. Well, it's not saying that he didn't have air. I mean, it, we're not getting the full picture. There's a lot of gaps in the story. Uh, yeah, because you can see that one. And and they're showing these images. Are these, uh, you think these are stills from the, the other diver or somebody on the surface? No, I'm sure, well, the one underwater has to be under there. I'm sure the other diver had a GoPro on him just like he did on his yeah. on his mat. Yeah. yeah just Because you would hope that even with a full face mask, uh, you would have a, a backup. And I don't see it. <laughs> yeah. Like you said, they well, needed... Well, they, they were lucky, and I bet they've learned a little bit of what not to do next time. Yeah. Yeah, because 100 feet, that's that's pretty deep. You're going through air pretty quick. 
as you start getting deeper. Uh, now, what's that? Uh, if you look, they show a photo of them in the decompression chamber. What is that around their necks? Is that just to give them a little bit of extra oxygen? I don't know. It's a neck dam, and the two hoses are connected to it, so I don't know. Reminds, I'm, I'm not familiar with that at all. It kind of reminds me of the movie Baron Muchausen. Uh, looks kind of like, like that. Uh, hmm. Yeah, just I'm just guessing based on the tubes, it's some sort of respiration. Unless they're measuring something as well as putting, yeah. Maybe one of our... Well, they don't have nasal cannulas. They do not have masks over their nose and mouth, so I, I'm not sure what that does. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't say which day of the... And that uh, looks like a rather large chamber. It does You've got easy chairs in there. How many easy chairs they got? Do they... They must have a lot of... I de- see four. How many decompression issues do they have down there? That's kind of like... I don't know. I'm, I'm curious, though, because normally... Items that are potentially sparky in there. I'm a, now we're assuming. Well, look at the window. I mean, that that looks that, like a pressure. That's what I said, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's uh, huh. I wonder if this is one of those uh, facilities where they maybe even do like surgeries, you know, like how we used to in the U.S. would do yeah. surgeries in hyperbaric. I wonder if this may be the same thing, where it's just a, a normally large, and they maybe they leave this room pressurized. They could do a small. Uh, uh, airlock and bring them in through the airlock and then you've got this larger room all because could you imagine how much air it would take to fill that oh yeah and if uh, that is one that you would roll a gurney in that'd have to be a really large secondary airlock or primary airlock yeah that, cause that airlock would be almost as big as the the chambers that we have around here yeah oh yeah uh, maybe somebody can tell us perth that's a pretty big city so they could have some unique stuff well glad to glad they're all right and recovering uh, next article we have is from sportsdiver.com. It says how dangerous rogue waves are formed in the world's oceans. It says on November 4th, 2000, the 56-foot Channel Islands National Marine Sanctuary Research Vessel, RV Ballerina, was hit by a rogue wave and capsized near Point Conception near Santa Barbara, California. The wave was estimated to be 20 feet high. The crew survived, but the ballerina was dashed by the waves against the island's rocky shore in a total loss. Even more famous is the loss of the SS Edmund Fitzgerald on November 10, 1975, which may have been caused by a rogue wave. The lake freighter sank suddenly during Lake Superior Gale and went down without a distress signal in Canadian waters. All 29 members of the crew perished. This phenomenon, which researchers say has been demonstrated in an experiment for the first time, is also believed to have played a part in producing a 39-foot wave known as the Dropner Wave which struck North Sea oil platform in 1995. Experiments were carried out in an 82-foot circular tank, the Flowwave Ocean Energy Research Facility at the University of Edinburgh. It showed for the first time how large waves are affected by the angle at which they intersect. Testing tank was able to simulate ocean currents and waves of any type, which are monitored using overhead sensors. The study published in the journal Fluid Mechanics was carried out in collaboration with the University of Oxford and supported by the UK's Engineering and Physical Science Research Council. Dr. Mark McAllister, who took part in the research while in the University of Edinburgh, said these experiments provide new insights into how the heightened or set-up wave actually form. They revealed that this behaves like a particular standing wave, which forms underneath waves as they cross. This insight allowed us to create a simple theory to predict when such waves might occur. Researchers say the understanding of road waves can lead to better designs of offshore structures and safer navigation by ships in the ocean. 
Oh, that'd be kind of interesting. I mean, because that's that's kind of what we we've, we've thought or speculated is that you know your rogue wave is just the multiplying effects that waves can have, where you can have a a couple normal sized waves, and depending on how they they come and interact with each other, you can have this wave that is quite a bit higher than thought possible. Well, Lake Michigan waves normally or not normally, but may easily reach twenty five foot during storm. And uh, nineteen seventy five. The standard large wave out there was 26 feet at the particular time of a storm then, and they believed they had some rogue waves that were in excess of 50 feet. That was 1975 in Lake Michigan. Yeah. And and then also the in uh, the Great Lakes is that our wave, waves tend to be closer together. And if you get a wave with a, a low trough um, and you're fairly heavily loaded, you can have some sort of... Uh, crushing effect or uh, you know or the the bottoms uh, will get a little bit more force than what they are designed for the next article again from sportsdiver.com is the ghost nets of greece for patio open water instructor alexandros mulgarius the ocean has always been his playground i was born and raised in the islands of samoa in the east algian sea is that that's not samoa that's uh samos in the east Aegean Sea and certifies an open water diver back in 1995. 23 years later, diving has become a way of life, life for him, way to be free and f- find inner peace and serenity. Uh, but he has a more compelling reason why uh, he and volunteers dive teams are drawn to this dive site in Greece. It's not uncommon to find discarded fishing gear during my dives, he explains. Lobster traps, pieces of fishing nets, full-size ghost nets. The ghost nets are often nearly invisible in dim light and we can left tangled in the rocky reef and drifting in the open ocean. Ghost gear is a term commonly used to describe fishing gear that has been lost or abandoned at sea. The gear continues to fish indiscriminately, catching and entangling fish, dolphins, sea turtles, sharks, and other marine creatures and birds, sometimes with devastating consequences. In the past seven months, uh, the team has led efforts to remove three ghost nets and various other lost or abandoned fishing items the net spanning anywhere between 50 and 80 meters in length. Uh, Malgarius adds, the site we dive is quite dynamic with shifting and covering and revealing debris all the time. Strong winds bring more debris. Many of the fish we see are already dead. If any creatures like crabs are still alive, we'll carefully release them underwater in shallower depth. Removing any nets from beneath the ocean requires skill and experience. He keeps his team of experienced divers to just three or four to help ensure the removal effort is coordinated and safety is paramount. Last year, uh, they joined Project Aware Adopt the Dive Site, choosing the Kokoria Dive Site, and the site has been dived for over 10 years. I want to keep it clean from plastics and safe for the marine life. Divers and my children, I feel it's like my backyard. I want my backyard clean and safe for all. That's why I support Project Aware. I am part of a global network of like-minded divers that gives back to the sea and their communities. And then next is a a promotion for the site, uh, for the program, AWARE. Now, I believe that's a a PADI program, isn't AWARE? I think it is. I do know the pictures of the ghost nets are quite interesting. You can see how massive they are. And that's got to be a a huge effort to get those wet, tangled things out of the water. Yeah, you've got only four divers, and these things are huge. And they're interacting with current, and you've got other stuff that's been trapped and moved in them. But I think probably what they've done, he's been doing it so long, is they have a, a set methodolo- methodology to how you approach it. 
Because your risk is get getting tangled yourself. Oh yeah. Yeah, you get caught in that, and and as 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 we know, trying to uh, cut some of those nets, you know, even with some of the sharpest implements, you you might be able to cut a little bit, but uh, things dull pretty rapidly. Yeah, not, nothing scares me as much as seeing a, a net stuck underwater. I, I sometimes it's just like I can just visualize that net coming out and heading towards me. <laughs> New study proves sharks, rays, and whales impacted by microplastic pollution. Uh, microplastic pollution is a major threat to filter feeder animals such as manta rays, whale sharks, and baleen whales, according to a new study published in a journal of Trends in Ecology and Evolution. These iconic animals are at risk for exposure to microplastic contamination-associated toxins. The paper authored by researchers from the uh, Marine Megafauna Foundation, Murdoch University, Australia, University of Siena, Italy, Hawaiian Institute of Marine Biology stress a significant risk microplastics posed to megafauna since these need to swallow hundreds of thousands of cubic meters of water daily in an effort to capture plankton. They can ingest microplastics directly from polluted water or indirectly through contaminated prey. Filtering the indigestible plastic particles can block nutrient absorption, cause damage to digestive tracts of animals, Additional plastic-associated chemicals and pollutants can accumulate over decades and alter biology processes, leading to altered growth, development, reproduction, including reduced fertility. Lead author Elitza Germanov, researcher at the Marine Megafauna Foundation, PhD student at Murdoch University, despite the growth research on microplastics in the marine environment, there are only a few studies that examine the effects on large filter feeders. We're still trying to understand the magnitude of the issue. It's become clear that microplastic contamination has potential to further reduce the population of these species, many of which are long-living and have few offspring throughout their life. It is vital to understand the effects of microplastic pollution on ocean giants since nearly half the mobulid rays, I probably pronounced it, mispronounced it earlier, two-thirds of the filter-feeding sharks and over one-quarter of baleen whales are listed by the IU. CN is globally threatened species and are prioritized for conservation. There's challenging to assess plastic concentrations through conventional methods usually used to study animal diets, such as stomach analyzers, collection of egress material, as these rely on opportunistic observations unsuitable for threatened species. However, using non-lethal sampling of small amounts of tissue biopsies, researchers are now able to test for chemical tracers. Professor Maria Christina Fossey from the University of Siena, one of the first scientists who studied this problem, and colleagues reported an average of 0.7 plastic items per cubic meter of water around the Baja California Peninsula, an interesting feed and important feeding ground for endangered whale sharks. Researchers estimated the whale shark may be ingesting 171 items on a daily basis. Meanwhile, in the Mediterranean Sea, fin whales are thought to swallow microplastic particles by the thousands per day. Our studies on whale sharks in the Sea of Cortez and the fins of whales in the Mediterranean Sea confirmed exposure to toxic chemicals, indicating these filter feeders are taking up microplastics in their feeding ground. Exposure to these plastic-associated toxins pose major threat to health of these animals since it can be altered, since it can alter the hormones which regulate bodies' growth, development, metabolism, reproduction functions, among other things, says Professor Fossey, who co-authored the paper. And did you see the photo? Well, we know that's going to be yeah. We know that's an issue because, remember, they posted that for all the Great Lakes. They were looking at the microplastics that we're talking about, and it's amazing how much is out there. Well, the thing with these these easy-to-produce plastic bags, um, what makes them so economical 
is also makes them a problem. You know, larger plastic items are typically going to settle, get buried, and probably not cause as much problem. People are going to argue that they're they're bad no matter what form, but eventually, uh, you yeah, know, they can break down to the smaller particles. But you've when you've got these thinner plastic membranes and they get out in the wild, they're just going they they're so close to uh, breaking down, getting brittle in the sunlight. And this photo that we're talking about in the article, you can see, uh, it looks like those are some like small shrimp. Mm-hmm. And the particles uh, look identical. So if you're filter feeding, you know, you're not picking through. Uh, you know, you're you're grabbing it all in, and you're just you know, you're you're filtering the the solid material away from the water. So plastics and everything else are are going to come on in. And this is what I've been encouraging is that for them to do these studies because it's uh, just speculating and thinking, oh, it must be bad is is one thing, but actually having um, evidence and studies is is actually what you're going to need. And what I what I think that they uh, they need to do is look at coming up with things that are very similar to plastics, but have an intentional uh, breakdown process. You know, we we had so many you know plastic not plasticizers, but you know the, the items to make the the plastic really flexible and uh, light resistant that it makes them last longer. If you had you know a biodegradable plastic that broke down relatively quickly, uh, that would help considerably. The challenge there is if you're using plastic, such as water containers, you don't want to break them down too quick. So how do you make that determination? You know, they've got to differentiate between containers or items designed to hold liquids as opposed to those like, you know, the thin bags. Yeah. Yeah. See, how many articles did I get ahead down there in the chat room? Yep. So that's where we're at now. We just, that was the last one. Uh are you doing the robots, Nick? Yeah, it looks like we got something to talk about, some robots. Imagine that. A new self-diving underwater robot will allow researchers to study ocean microbes. Out of Honolulu, Hawaii, the first time scientists from the University of Hawaii and Man- Manoa and the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute will deploy a small fleet of long-range autonomous underwater vehicles that have the ability to collect and archive seawater samples automatically. These new robots will allow researchers to track and study Ocean microbes in unprecedented detail. Ocean microbes produce at least 50% of the oxygen in our atmosphere while removing large amounts of carbon dioxide. They also form foundation of marine food webs, including those support global under uh, glo- global ocean fisheries. Edward DeLong and David Carl, oceanographic professor of the UH Manoa School of Ocean and Earth Sciences and Technology, have been studying these microbes for decades. For this project, they and their teams are collaborating with engineers at M-B-A-R-I, to test new ways of adaptively sampling ocean features such as open ocean eddies, swirling masses of water that move slowly across the Pacific Ocean, which can have large effects on the ocean microbes. In late February 2018, engineers completed their construction and testing of three new uh, long-range underwater uh, vehicles in response in collaboration with UH Manoa scientists and and delivered them last week for the first deployment in Hawaiian waters. As they move through the ocean, they collect information about water temperature, chemistry, chlorophyll, which is an indicator of microscopic algae, and send the state of scientists on shore or a nearby ship. Additionally, unique aspects of these AUVs is an integrated environmental sample processor, a miniature robotic laboratory that collects and preserves seawater samples at sea, allowing researchers to capture and snapshot the organism's 
genetic material, and proteins. The new LRAUVs can transit for over 600 miles and use their own eyes and ears to detect important oceanographic events like phytoplankton blooms. These new underwater drones will greatly extend our reach and study remote areas and also allow us to sample and study oceanographic events and features we can see by remote satellite imaging even when ships are not available, uh, according to D. Long. Huh. I, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing these underwater robots uh, get more and more autonomous. Uh, it, it, it should help us study quite a bit better when you, when you think about how they don't have to come, you know, you don't have to put them on a boat as, as often as you would otherwise. You know, when you look at most of the studies now, they're doing it from a research vessel, which is expensive to operate. Uh, they got limited seasons. You've got bad weather. Uh, if you can get an ROV that's able to go out and travel for quite a distance and, and hopefully come back, you don't want to lose a million-dollar piece of equipment. But uh, you substantially increase the amount of sampling and underwater time uh, your tests will have. Well, if you had the funds on what you'd wind up doing is, you know, you take one north, south, east, and west from one, you know, from one boot, so you capture a lot more information. Or if they're autonomous, depend on how you program them. Maybe you could have them doing overlapping sleeves or lanes. Yeah. So like you're saying, multiply the work that can be done using the autonomous AUVs. But that's expensive. Oh, yeah. Well, and then... You know, playing around a little bit with robots, some of the stuff he's claiming that they're able to do, I would love to know a little bit more details about it. Uh, I think what they're saying is that they're able to infer some of this information, that it's certainly not uh, stuff that they're currently able to do. Uh, you know, some of these, uh, and real-time analysis and uh, is getting better, but uh, I don't, I don't know if it's quite to the level that they were uh, talking about in the article. And then we have divers dredge up trash 25 fleet, uh, feet below the Lake Fallon's surface. Uh, scuba crew spent Sunday, Saturday morning about 25 feet below the lake surface looking for trash. Uh, one of their big finds was a large broken light fixture. It doesn't clean itself, said Alex Johnson uh, of the urban lake located in St. Paul and Maplewood, the centerwood of the Fallon Regional Park System. Johnson joined 23 other divers from three different dive groups around the 8th annual event organized by the BSA Venture Crew 820 and Great Lake Shipwreck Preservation Society. Several teens who participated were scouts. BSA uses events like these to help the community and give scouts the opportunity to dive. Johnson said he had dived in the Lake Flynn about uh, five years ago. I said Flynn, Fallon, I think is what it is. And was disgusted with all the garbage he found at the bottom of the lake. He had just returned from his honeymoon in Maui, where he was impressed how clean the residents kept the reef. Why can't we do this here in Minnesota? He, he asked himself last night. He came across uh, Dean Soderbrook's BSA flyer to help clean the lake and decide to help out. Suspecting the same trash he saw before, Johnson surprised by the improvements he believes were made by the BSA efforts. Significantly better than when I was here before. Soderbeck said he and his organization have adopted the lake and have had many other odd treasures over the years, such as two-liter bottles of unopened vodka that he poured out because he was with teenagers. Uh, I think we know from experience that those bottles you find down there are usually not worth drinking. Uh, yeah, but we don't know where he poured it. <laughs> That's true. That's a technicality. Uh, one guy found a plastic Uzi with an orange tip painted black. I would have been scared to see that. 
He said the lake, which has a sandy beach, actually has a gravel bottom. He's seen debris from an old swimming platform from the 1950s, about 25 feet down, and a man-made stow wall that helped stop up the lake and keep it from draining. Water temperatures where the divers swam Saturday were down the low 40s. There was a picnic table down there, said Zach Ophus, 15, who came out to help with the air, the effort. Ophus, a master diver, said his uh, favorite dive was a Great Barrier Reef in Australia. Lake Fallon can't really compete, but Hofus said he enjoyed himself anyway. Kind of fun to clean up the lake. <laughs> I, is it okay I, to be jealous of sure. a kid? <laughs> I suppose, but would you be scared to have found a toy plastic? Oh, I know. Gun with an orange tip. Well, he, they said the orange tip was painted black, so that makes it well, ominous. Um, so what if it it does? You mean was it most was, of the guys I know if they could find that on the bottom and think it's real, <laughs> it's like hot damn dog. Yeah, no, you're scared. I don't. Even think, no, it's not even in the vocabulary. Well, it's not like would it's you gonna, be scared to see something like that? No, no, not at all. It's uh, yeah, it's uh, was was that the kid who said that? No, he just said that one guy found. Yeah. he said I would have been scared. It's like excuse me. No, well, yeah, okay. <laughs> I'm just picky that way. Yeah, well, I think maybe they're doing small talk, but, uh, you know, a lot of people, it's, you know, even if it was a real gun, it's not like it was going to go and attack you. It would make you wonder what the heck it was doing there. I don't want to know the story, but uh, good for them for cleaning up the lakes. That's something that, uh, you know, we we continue to do around here, and hopefully everybody else, if you're a diver, uh, you know, make sure that you go out and support these type of ecology events. And even ones that aren't started by dive groups, there's a lot of them that are going on, clean the rivers, efforts. And uh, just coordinate and, you know, say you're a diver and let them know what, what how you can help. Uh, and then also, if every time you're out there diving, if you take two or three pieces of trash uh, while you're doing your other things, that, you know, that will all do its part. And I think most of the muddies do that. I don't think anybody ever comes back from the river or any place if they didn't pick up something on the way back. Yeah, I, I certainly agree. And then we have a couple of scuba diver profiles. These are from sportsdiver.com. The first one is Peter Hughes, and we won't read all the uh, profile, but uh, they're certainly worth taking a look at. Uh, If you're a younger diver, you can see uh, some of the lives that some of these have, like this Peter is age 70, hometown is Boynton Beach, Florida. He's only been diving 60 years. (laughs) He started when he's 10. Highest level certification is open water scuba instructor. Uh, YMCA in 1970 and Patty in 1976. He's been in the recreational diving business full-time since 1968. Uh, he was inducted into the 2018 Academy of Underwater Arts and Scientists Fellow Program with NOGI Award for Distinguished Service at DEMA 2017. Other recipients of this particular NOGI include Captain Jacques Cousteau. That's the Nogi, right? Nogi Award? Yep. I, oh, I didn't know that's how they said it. They just said N-O-G-I. Yeah. Very cool. Uh, well, it, when you say very cool, what you mean is it's not cool where he dives all the time. I mean, there is no ice, and you can dive as much as he wants. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm looking at a photo of him, and uh, he does not look 70, does he? No, not really. <laughs> that's because he's enjoying himself. Yeah, he's smiling and uh, having a good time. See, See, that's, that's uh, some of the uh, unsubstantiated claims we can make is that scuba diving will keep you young. 
Well, it keeps you, if you're active that way, you're not going to be rotund from the aspect of overweight, <laughs> which will make you age quicker. Yeah, that's that's my problem. I need to do more scuba diving. Doctor's orders. Well, yeah. Huh? <laughs> and then the uh, other diver that we have, uh, let's see, do I have another one? Yes. Oh, why did I? Michael, uh, three down from where you're at. Yeah, I'm trying to find him on my list. Oh, here we go. Uh, profile, and it's a looks like a French name, so I'm going to screw it up. Is that Michelle, M- Mike, Michael? I got to de- say sorry. Mike. My, my Mike and uh, Labrique. Is that how you would, would say, say that? Mike. <laughs> Mike, Mike L. Uh, underwater photographer and explorer has a passion for marine conservation after traveling around the world to dive. Uh, Patty, master scuba instructor, tech rec, technical instructor, professional underwater photographer. He has spent most of his time beneath the waves exploring underwater world, capturing iconic images. His images have been featured in renowned news outlets around the world, whether documenting uncharted dive sites or addressing marine conservation items. His passion approach to visual storytelling inspires others to connect with the ocean and preserve it for future generations. And again, we won't read it, but it's uh, certainly worth Taking a look, we'll have it in the show notes so you can click on over and, and read more about it. That one picture of him, though, on the bottom, yeah. that is a nice rig. Yeah, you How know, many bottles? Did you, it looks like doubles on his back plus two <laughs> sling bottles. Yeah, those, uh, those, you know, those uh, photographers. He, now, he, so he's not using rebreather? It does not appear to be rebreathing, but you'll also know he's got the frog kick. And if you look behind him, there is no plume following him. Oh, yeah. You, you got a nice, get, nice neutral balance. Excellent. That's Photoshop. He just photoshopped the bubbles out. No, so well, he got bubbles above them though. Uh, the, the, got those skills. I like the part though where they had what is the strangest piece of trash you found underwater? What do he say? He says, "Well, he said I don't know what could qualify as the strangest, but objects mostly collected during dive against debris trips range from a safe, unfortunately empty, my." That's always happening to me. It's always empty. <laughs> They're always uh, empty. To the remains of an old 50s pickup truck, cars, refrigerator, ammo, and other pieces that looked like explosive device in the making. The most unusual marine debris was a pack of cocaine brought to the island by ocean current. If you ask, I didn't buy a new home after the expedition. <laughs> Meaning he finds what we find in the river. Yeah. Everything anybody's ever dropped in there and didn't retrieve. And when you say drop, that's usually meant thrown. Thrown. Because refrigerators don't usually fall into the river. But they, now, we, we, have, we do have evidence that portageons uh, can just float in there, though. That's true. They can get legs and then sort of go away. Yeah. And if you don't know what we're talking about, you have to go back and listen to a few episodes where we talk about the floods and niles and the portageon hunt that is currently underway. Then we have an article, again, from uh, sportdiver.com. Uh, uh, diver pulls teeth from a hammerhead shark mouth to ease its pain. Uh, filmmaker Joe Romero, Romeo, Romero, Romeo, one of those. Well, why do all these names have extra letters in them? I want everything to be three or four letters, and that's it. My name I called him Romeo. Romeo. <laughs> Decided he wanted to update his resume with a new job title, and that would be Shark Dentist. Uh, Romeo turned heads with a recent Instagram post that included photos of him removing a tooth from a great hammerhead shark. Even though we're generally conditioned to stay away from shark's teeth, 
Romeo decided to help remove two damaged teeth when he saw the hammerhead's gums were infected and irritated. I wouldn't advise anyone to try this. The encounter happened in 2005, according to Grind TV, but he also posted photos last week. Experienced shark divers spend a significant time with a shark over several dives in the Bahamas while filming, allowing him to notice a sensitive spot in the gums. She eventually just let me do it, and she's really active afterwards. I can only describe it as it seemed like she is relieved that it wasn't impacted anymore. I would be very, very, very cautious that <laughs> what I, I mean, when you start messing with the teeth of a hammerhead and look at the head, this, this, this is hammerheads are known for being a little bit feisty. Uh, and this is not a small shark. I mean, this is a shark that could easily take an arm. And if uh, it, yeah, if, and since your head is in proximity to his mouth, yeah, I'd be more concerned with my head. I'm just, yeah. <laughs> I, I wonder if he numbed it with something like. <laughs> well, I, I can. So he'd be really docile or something. I, I'm thinking you don't use blood popsicles. I don't think that was a good numbing agent. Uh, I don't know. I mean, do you make sure that you fed it from five trips before? Or maybe do you want do you not want it fed? I don't know. I was trying to look into what kind of did he have pliers or needle nose when he got that tooth out? Well, the the, just, the image just shows him reaching in with his neoprene gloved hand. Well, it, I thought the um, the sharks generally just shed their teeth anyway. They, so they, I was I'm sort of surprised when when they're you know you have an infected gum or something. Well, what it was sounding like is maybe it's this is might not be an uncommon thing because they 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 kind of. Uh, my understanding, not being a marine biologist, is they have multiple rows of teeth, and they just kind of slowly move, almost like an an, an escalator. And as the teeth get teeth get farther to the front, they come out, and the teeth from behind fill in its space. I don't know biologically exactly how that that escalator works if they're you know just loose and sliding or or how, but maybe it's a a case of you know kind of like in humans where. As a young kid, uh, you, your teeth, you may have a tooth that doesn't want to come out and it needs a little bit of nudging. I wonder if the same thing was happening to shark. That, uh, yeah, you would think, though, wouldn't you, that they might want to sort of nudge up against a coral head with their the owie part of the tooth? Yeah. You know, you know what I'm saying? But maybe you are pulling away from it as well. I mean, you, you know, when you got a sore part, you know, the best thing to do might be the one that hurts the most, and so you might not. Yeah. Yeah, so, okay. I I put this right in with the one with the uh, crocodile encounter myself. Yeah, and and, uh, that that one's actually (laughs) the the next one up. How a photographer captured a close close crocodile encounter. uh, And and another name I'm going to mess up, David uh, Dublay, was scuba diving with his wife Jennifer Hayes in the gardens of Queen National Park off the coast of Cuba. The couple in both life and photography had documented healthy reefs filled with sharks, fish, crocodiles. So they went back 15 years later to see if anything has changed. Hayes had her back to Dublay with a giant American crocodile swam between them. You know, those Americans in Cuba. Uh, Dubay made loud, loud noise and fired a, a burst of flashlit shots to let her know that they were not alone. She turned around to find herself face to snout, snout with the American crocodile. She says she didn't feel threatened by these species at this time. She settled in the capture moment while her husband took a photograph of the experience. For insurance purposes only. <laughs> yeah. He was thinking, gosh, I'm glad I upped that policy. Yeah. See, I really didn't feed her to the fishes. Yeah. 
You have to see that picture to really believe it. I mean, if I wasn't wearing a wetsuit, I would have a wetsuit on when I turned around. Yeah. I'm I'm trying. I'm, I went to the National Geographic uh, site. Oh, wow. Holy mackerel. Oh, I've, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Derek. Uh, uh, t- uh, Dad. Oh, wow. The picture makes it worse. It does. I just think of the potential that could have been. Yeah. Then you'd have had a real good video. Well, I'm just thinking that the croc, he wasn't doing anything. He was going for a selfie. <laughs> I mean, that, that's what it looked. Actually, it looks like the photographer is doing a selfie with a crocodile. If you didn't, you know, that that could be the caption. Yeah. Uh, Jennifer says, I found myself face to snout with the crocodile, both surprised and very pleased. I greeted him through my regulator. Uh, and then her husband says, she gave me a quick thumbs up, nodded okay, and burbled an audio. Hello, handsome, as she bent closer to take his portrait. Shown above, I marveled as she addressed the crocodile with respect, calm curiosity, and absolute joy. She settled to capture the moment without missing a beat. She says, I didn't feel threatened for several days. I watched these crocodiles wander about, investigating things in the mangrove, chase fish in circles for fun, and sleep within view of us. Many of them swam with snorkelers on a daily basis. I felt familiar with their behavior, and I have a big sea cam underwater housing that could double as a mighty shield if I needed. Yeah, that was in front of you. He was behind you. But I want to be clear, I was comfortable with this species of crocodile in this particular place at that particular time. I would not have been comfortable with a more aggressive species, such as a Nile or saltwater crocodile, in a different environment. And then he says, when people see the image of the crocodile behind Jennifer, reactions include wonder, awe, and horror. But after a few frames, frames of the croc, unimpressed with us, drifted downstream on its way to do other crocodile things, we continued our quest for jellyfish. <laughs> and then here's the important thing. As we talk about the insurance claim, many people ask if I'm angry with David, that David took the picture instead of trying to save me. My answer is this. I would have been unhappy if he had not taken the photos. I have, I was a visitor of this creature's environment and I was compelled to investigate. That's why I, I hope for an assignment. I'm not afraid, but thrilled to see such an ancient creature. A novice who was unsure and was spooked, the reaction they made you know, in a response oh, yeah. like that might have uh, created a similar response in the croc. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, cause they, they're, I mean, there's a certain amount of instinct that these animals will have. And, uh, the whole goal, my whole goal with shot sharks or any other animal is don't look or act like food and probably not good to smell like food either. So if you move abruptly, you never know you, it could, uh, misinterpret that as, uh, you know, it's uh, lunch trying to get away. I think it's always a good thing, even even not scuba diving. Don't be lunch. I second that motion. And let's see. This next one we have is magnetic islands, forgotten shipwrecks have untapped tourism potential. This is from abc.net.au. Down in the southern hemisphere, once again, most divers have heard of the wreck of the Yungala off the coast of North Queensland as one of the world's top dive sites. But a few knew that dotted around Magnetic Island, just 70 kilometers north, there's another 20 shipwrecks that have great tourism potential that remain largely untapped. One of these is the city of Adelaide, which ran aground in Crocky Bay in 1916 while being transported after sail. Just 300 meters offshore, it's possible to wade out to the wreck during low tide, 
however few visit it. There was no loss of life, therefore is no newsworthy factor. Unlike the Yangala, the Magnetic Museum's Zanita Davies. Oh, said uh, Zanita Davies. Oh, that's a nice photo, that, that vessel. Oh, yeah. Under full sail, the city of Adelaide was said to be as beautiful as a bird in flight in her heyday. The 80-meter vessel was constructed in 1864 in Glasgow and spent many years as a passenger ship before she was converted to a coal storage vessel in 1902. In 1912, the coal caught fire and the city of Adelaide burned for two days. Did they have hot dogs back then? Three years oh, after well. the fire, Magnetic Island businessman named George Butler purchased the ship with a plan to refit her as accommodation for tourists or as a breakwater in Picnic Bay. What was it made of that there's anything left after two days of a fire? Everything below the waterline? I'm guessing. Uh, it was en route to her new home when she ran aground in uh, Crockle Bay. Miss Davy said, as time went on, locals used the ship as a changing room and coming to swim around the wreck or collecting oysters that grew on her sides. In 1942, four servicemen died when their fighter plane crashed into the rear mast of the city of Adelaide while on a training exercise. Well, there's a story. The hull of the ship then sustained further certificate damage in a cyclone, Athena, in 1971. That looks like a steel hull, doesn't it? Part of it does. I'm not sure which picture is which. Yeah. Yeah, because that's the city of Adelaide down below. and what... The first picture looks like wood. The second picture is wood. The third one doesn't look wood because that's a huge, I mean, it's rust through the middle. And then that huge anchor, all those kids are around. Yeah. Huh. They said the Magnetic Island's 20 shipwrecks featured in a diving trail, which developed by the Maritime Museum of Townsville for divers and snorkelers. Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority Maritime Archaeologist Peter Illich said many of the island's wrecks, including the Mulkey, are great dive sites, and he believes more could be made of the region's wrecks. North Queensland is actually already a center for shipwreck diving if we look at the Yang Yangala, so I don't think it would take much to get people interested. Advertising a few more trips out, signage around Manic Island saying that it is out there. We do have signage out there, but we could potentially do a bit more. With several Magnetic Islands wrecked so close to shore, Mr. Illich says even non-divers can explode at sites. The city of Adelaide is a great wreck for viewing lots of parts of ship you wouldn't normally see. It's interesting, on the one photo, you can see sand and everybody standing around it, and the one now, it's way, way out there. I don't think that's the same boat. If you know, it is, it looks really weird, or the tide sure comes in high. Oh, that could be. It could be a little bit of tide, but... Uh, because they, they say it's the same in the in the captions. I don't think it is, because that other one looks steel to me, and I don't see any signs of trees living inside of that hull. And uh, the third picture has trees. Well, I wonder at what point in time these are, the photos. Yeah, oh. that top picture and the third picture are the same. I don't think that steel hull, because that's what it looks like, but that anchor is the same boat. It'll be interesting. I wonder if they have snakes on that. Ooh, like a snake island boat. Uh, one of the comments is, uh, I think the city of Adelaide is well and truly past its prime. I think it's a quite dangerous wreck for physical viewing in terms of being close to it, so you have to be really particular about how it was managed. Oh, I didn't give that to the chat room. Sorry, chat room. 
Hmm. I got a little bit behind on my own show notes. So the next one is a wood chunk found at a UA at UA consistent with the wreckage from a 17th century treasure ship. In the fall of 2016, Chris Bazin was pursuing an, the archive of uh, perusing the archives of the laboratory of three ring research at the university of Arizona, uh, UA where his senior research specialist, all well, where he is a senior research specialist. You can tell when I've done too many of these, uh, I was going through these boxes, which nobody had looked in since the 70s. From one dusty cardboard box, he pulled a splintered chunk of wood that dotted with barnacles and a turquoise residue of oxidized copper. Worms had carved maize throughout. Tacked to the yellow index card, it read, Timber from a shipwreck off the coast of Florida, Boca Raton, associated with a coin of 1640s, donated by Charles Hoffman, July 14th, 1966. I go, what the hell is that? It's cool looking. So that's the kind of where the story starts. And so he did a little bit of research. Charles Hoffman, a young UA PhD student studying anthropology in in the UA in the mid-1960s, while visiting Florida, where he received his bachelor's degree in journalism and master's degree in anthropology, he discovered a curious piece of wood and possibly centuries-old coin while combing the beaches of Boca Raton. It's entirely possible that a 1964 hurricane in Florida exposed this timber just long enough for it to get a few barnacles and a few shipworms things, and he found it. Hoffman brought it back to Tucson and showed it to the Marvin Stokes, his professor of, let's see, Den Branch, Branch, Phonology. I don't even know. I'm I'm, I'm probably uh, misbreaking up the syllables, which is a science of dating, environmental conditions, events, and artifacts through timber growth rings. He was just a grad student. It was probably something he Bras of curiosity show Marvin they couldn't do anything with it, and Marv thought it was cool, and they stuck it in the box. With his curiosity piqued, Bazin sought to uncover the plank's origins, armed with a mysterious hunk of wood and dated note referencing a missing coin, and most fortunately, an arsenal of experts trained in the tea secrets out of layers of wood, he got to work. Only recently have these experts had the technology and the data needed to probe the anonymous plank's history. When he found out that the wood possibly came from a shipwreck famous among treasure hunters, a Spanish fleet carrying newly minted coins from Mexico in 1641. In 1641, the Spanish were scheduled to haul freshly minted coins from Veracruz, Mexico to Spain. The Spanish were wary of pirates while transporting such precious cargo, so they had additional ships built to serve as armed escorts to the approximately two dozen cargo ships. While there are differing opinions on how many ships were in the fleet, Estimates hover around 30. By the time the fleet reached Havana, Cuba, taken on additional cargo, done repairs, and dressed or other matters, it had been delayed by about a month. Under pressure to return home, the fleet pressed on just as hurricane season was picking up. Soon after, a hurricane overwhelmed and scattered the fleet as it was sailing through the Straits of Florida. One ship made it back to Spain. A few more made it to St. Augustine on Florida's eastern coast, Havana, Puerto Rico, and Hispaniola, where it is now Haiti and the Dominican Republic. At least one ship, the Nostra Signora de la Pura, and you can go look it up the rest, crashed in the reef called Silver Shoals about 85 miles northeast of the island, uh, Hispaniola. The ship and its loot have enticed treasure hunters for centuries. About four day, decades after the wreck, Sir William Phillips, the first governor of the province of Massachusetts Bay, and famous for creating and dismantling the court that enabled the Salem witch trials, discovered much of the precious cargo. 
1978, two more men hauled up additional treasure from the same site with the help of author Peter Earle, who wrote a book from the from which uh, Basium cited the most of his casual research, The Treasure of the Conception, the Wreck of the Almiranta. Most of the ships they never found except for the ones off the coast. Earl's book had not been written or the treasure found by modern explorers when Hoffman brought the plank to Tucson in the mid-60s, but since then there have been additional advancements that have helped uncover its history. If you've ever seen a tree stump, you've noticed a series of concentric circles emanating from the center of the stump to the bark of the tree. Each ring represents a year of growth, and the thickness of each ring correlates to the environmental conditions during the tree's growth season. The thicker the ring, the more favorable the water temperatures and conditions of time. In this way, trees are local weather logs going back decades, centuries, and sometimes millennia, depending on the age of the tree. Uh, specialists may use many tree species over a broad geographic area to build large collections of these historic logs called chronologi- chron- chronologies. Uh, Tomas Wazni, a UA associate research professor, has been working with the group for years to create a multi-millennia chronology spanning Central Europe to Turkey. He was asked to pinpoint the timber's origins and place and time. For me, it's an anonymous piece of wood, so I need to identify the species of wood. It's typical of white oak, and the ring stacks or tree ring patterns are very European. Next, I measured this tree's ring's width and compared it to tree chronologies. Lasney was able to match and verify statistically the ring pattern of the ship timber with oaks growing in southern Germany. The oldest ring was from the mid-1400s, and the last ring preserved in the sample was from 1586. However, it's not a pristine slice of the tree. Oaks have reddish collection of inner rings called heartwood and the light tan collection of outer rings called sapwood. After tripping the wood to build the ship an additional wear and tear, the outer layers of sapwood was totally missing as well as an unknown amount of the inner heartwood. The team therefore could not know the tree's exact cut date. Fortunately, when you work with trees your entire life, you start to notice patterns. Lasney was able to calculate that for oaks of the region, there were an average of 19 rings of sapwood. Adding 19 years to the last ring indicated that 1586 places the cut date to at least 1605. Spanish ships sailed before 1641. Okay, it fits. It could be a ship of that vintage, he said. Also, he knew at the time that Spain was importing wood from southern Germany to build high-quality ships to carry explorers to the New World. Next, uh, Bazin wants to take advantage of another advancement to identify his timber. Embedded in the timber are nails made of metals such as copper, bronze, or brass. The metal of impurities are unique to the region and time period the metal was forged. The X-ray fluoros science machine in the tree ring lab will allow Bayesian and colleagues to do chemical analysis of whatever metal is exposed. He hopes to run the test in the near future. Bayesian recognizes the hypothesis hinges on the legitimacy of the coin uh, noted by Hoffman. Maybe there's a beach company found a timber and found a coin after the storm. It's a pretty weak association. He also finds significance that Hosman thought the coin was related to the timber in the first place. Bayesian wishes he could find some evidence of the coin, but unfortunately Hoffman and Stokes have both died. Inquiries to Hoffman's former colleagues to search his notes have turned up no results. They cannot find a way to contact any family members. What's most frustrating to Bayesian is that Hoffman was living in Flagstaff for years before he died in, 20, in uh, 2005. I was here at the lab at the same time Hoffman was in Flagstaff. If I had looked in the box and found it and figured out who it was, I could have asked him about it. Bayesian said Stokes also helped train uh, Bayesian. Bayesian cannot definitively say the timber originated from the wreck 
of that famous fleet. He can say, however, that based on the mounting evidence, it is still a possibility the evidence fit. He has even ruled out other wrecks in the area from the same period. Do you get one piece of wood? He says, which is way less than ideal, but it fits this huge grand story. All from a stump. Hypothesis. Hmm. So it makes you wonder what else is hidden in those other boxes laying around. Yeah. I, I wonder what kind of effort they're doing to get new samples. I mean, do they just keep reinforcing their knowledge? You know, for example, like Max Rec. If you... I'm not sure they reinforced any knowledge. I think they have more questions than they do answers. Well, right. But, I mean, say you have known specimens, you know, a, a building, for example, where it's very well documented and there's a support beam. You know, you could core that wood and compare it to what you have and see if it matches. This next article, su- go ahead. I was going to say, I suppose, but I'm still looking at the bottom line of return on the investment of the time and effort he's, of what value, actual value is that? Well, he's a researcher. Isn't that what they do, research? I thought people did things for the value that you would glean from that, not self-satisfaction, right? Yeah. If I mean, the coin was with it, then you've got a relationship. But again, they couldn't prove the coin that is lost, which makes me wonder what happened to the coin now. Well, and okay, so let's take that to the end. So you prove this was from a a shipwreck from that age. What do you what have you got? Well, one, you don't know the name of which ship, so you don't have something to go against it. You just know a shipwreck and how many thousands so what I'm saying, the significance of it, like the Titanic is different than a steel hull whatever. If you don't have some pedigree or history to it, it, it doesn't really count, does it? Well, I, I guess to kind of be a pessimist on it, say say you could identify it down to a ship. What's what's the significance of that piece of wood? Gen- generally, if the ship was a if the ship was of some historical significance or to you significant, it has some value. It's like uh, the Frank W. Wheeler. They you made coffee tables out of it and put plaques on it, Frank W. Wheeler. You can look up the history of the boat. If you live local, you're on the beach, you say, hey, I have this table that's made out of the shipwreck sunk right over there. You've got some relationship value to yourself. Yeah, you, you value it. That's right. Yeah, it's an individual. Yeah. But to the world, it's like, well, you know, I got China off the Andradorio, which is more worthy. Yeah. Well, Depending if you bought it or if you got it. You know, well, well, earlier today I was I was reading and somebody was talking about archaeology and he says you take something, you bury it in the ground long enough and eventually, if you're lucky, it becomes worth something. And usually that stuff is trash. When they well, like they, they say, the dumps we have up today will be the archaeology, the archie, yeah, the digs of tomorrow. Oh, exactly. Actually, I think we'll be mining them. That's my pet theory. You got some and time. that. Is probably true because a lot of the stuff will not degrade, and you're going to finally have to use it because if you want materials, you got to go someplace. Yeah, yeah, that. And just... that's pretty sad when you think about that. Well, you you look at how much land they they open up for certain minerals when and you you've got such a low concentration of that mineral even in their ore, you have a much higher concentration at most of your dumps. Yep. And then they say that it's very rare suspected 19th century shipwreck exposed on Auckland's uh, Marari Beach. 
Shifting sands in the beach have revealed a remarkably intact 17-meter shipwreck. It's very rare, suspected 19th century shipwreck exposed. It's just the sort of thing that would have been traded between the West Coast harbors, Wanhaga, Raglan, Capiria, and further north, Mr. Brassy said. High tides uncovered the vessel this weekend, but the ship ultimately had been looted for deck timber, annoying heritage New Zealand's Greg Water. Although the wreck is relatively complete, and together at this point, what we can see of it and the people come across just help themselves to parts. It just makes our job that much harder. Did you take a look at the picture? Yeah, I'm looking. I I didn't watch the video, but I'm looking. The wreck at, is relatively complete. Excuse me. <laughs> it's just like that piece we talked about yeah. two weeks ago. Well, they're they're whining. It's not more complete. I mean, do they have evidence that somebody pulled it off? And when they say pulled it off, are they talking about somebody last week, last year, eighty years ago? <laughs> I mean, when the wheeler, when the Frank, when the wheeler went down in the ice. People went out there, cut off the mast and stuff to bring it ashore to burn it for fuel. Right. Now, he would have those people f- flocked. I mean, you can't do that because we want to dig it up in 100 years. Yeah, in 100 years. <laughs> it's all garbage. I mean, nobody intended for that ship to be right where it's at. Uh, I just don't see it as a pristine time time capsule of the period. And I hear that so often on what we look here. That's not even a rubble wreck. Yeah. Well, they say that since uh, he had visited it yesterday, someone had taken to the timbers of the chainsaw. <laughs> where are they at? Auckland. I mean, are they in that poor of an area where people are just desperate to go and salvage it? $60,000 fine? Well, anyone caught doing uh, doing so faces a $60,000 fine. And most likely the people who are doing that... Uh, you might as well make it a billion dollar fine. They're not. They're not going to have the money. Yeah, for predates nineteen hundred, automatically protected under the heritage laws. Everybody's past that. That now. Well, that's one hundred eighteen years. In Michigan, that's fifty years. So when you find that dime laying on the pavement up there, and it's fifty years older, you got to turn that into the state. So don't forget that. Oh, it, that, that that dime. That's only been sitting there for a year. It's unclaimed. It must have been there forever, you know. <laughs> okay. Well, I think we've done enough to the news. We got some uh, other articles, but I think maybe we'll cover those next week. Let's see. What are we we approaching? We approaching a long time. <coughs> quite yeah. a bit. Yeah, we, we, we've we've stretched this one out quite a bit. And I understand we did have some diving going on this last weekend and all the way up to today we're we're into that summer diving season and people are starting to do the thirsty thursday dives and other things yeah uh, may 16th they went up to the south haven pier dump site that's about two miles from the uh, piers up there in south haven it's in 55 foot of water and it's quite large and if you look at it on side scan it's really impressive when you get down there it's a bunch of rocks covered in mussels uh, on the 25th of may uh, Kevin did a nice presentation on scuba and shipwrecks uh, to Pawpaw High School students. Uh, the buoy is set on the Ann Arbor Five. And uh, last week, for the weekend, quite a few people got out on the Ironsides off of Grand Haven. Uh, let's see, 57 degrees Fahrenheit on the surface, 41 Fahrenheit on the bottom. As you went down, visibility was terrible, so you got it out 40 foot from the bottom, and it cleared up pretty nice. 
Uh, it was a, an official buoy team function, so there's a buoy set on the iron sights. Very nice. Like, visibility was clear to 15, clouded up till you got down 75 feet, and then when you got to the bottom at 120, visibility was about 40 feet. Uh, they did have a side note on that. When they were packing their gear, there was an SOS from a sinking boat. They gave its coordinates, so first being divers, they wrote down the GPS numbers so they could have a fresh dive, you know, a fresh wreck. Uh, the Coast Guard beat them there and uh, helped prevent it from sinking. Darn it. Uh, the Havana was dove. Um, Amy, our newest uh, club member, by the way, uh, dove the Havana with uh, Kevin. And let's see, I think depth, obviously, is 55 feet. Everybody pretty much knows that. Uh, the visibility was about 10 feet, which is average for that this time of year. And let's see what else. Some people hit Lake 16, said the visibility out there was pretty good. And if you're going to be doing anything, that's the place to go now. Said uh, visibility was 5 to 8 feet. No, take that back. That was, no, 5 to 8 was on the Havana. So, yes, people had been out. And probably the biggest event was over the weekend for the Mermaid Megafest. In oh, South Haven. the Megafest. Right. Uh, we did have a number of people out there. Uh, St. Mary Beth, I saw, I got a picture of her out there on the kayak. Uh, Karen had her boat out, and they loaded three or four kayaks on it. So they had people offshore the pier head. So if any of the mermaids fell in, they'd have somebody to uh, to rescue them. Uh, Karen was on shore with a cart going up and down, giving water and other aid materials to the mermaids, giving them hydrated. And I do believe they did set the record. They wanted to beat 350, I believe, was uh, the last record. And they made it, I understand, 500. But I, it might be a little more, a little less than 500. Wow. Uh, and there, if you went to the site, there's a lot of really interesting pictures. And I think that the, some of the cutest ones out there with some of the kids. And, but there were some very, very attractive older mermaids. And there were mermen. A lot more than I had anticipated. Uh, the, uh, uh, the the chat room is asking for photos. Go to uh, the Mermaid site. I think I posted some uh, someplace. What was it? Mermaid fact, I did Megafest? Have, I put it, yes. Mermaid Megafest, South Haven. Uh, I saw two different. Oh, God. Do I the guy with the, with the trident? Uh, Poseidon? Senior moment. Poseidon. So a couple of Poseidons there. Uh, but the girls who do that sort of professionally, were freaking outstanding. And if you watch some of them swim in the tank, they have that down pat, that if you didn't know better, you'd swear they're real, you know, mermaids. So big event. Uh, it went off really nice, and the weather was absolutely gorgeous. My first sunburn of the, of the summer. So, yes, they've been active, and it's been really nice. Excellent. And I see there's a lot of talk about dives going on this weekend. Uh, yeah, the call went out as who's diving and who wants to go. Don't forget, we've got the Thursday Thursdays if they post them on Facebook. We've got Sasses on Wednesday night, so and they always are going. So that's two dives right there. You can always go. And I think those are posted, the schedule for those are posted on the club site. So has anybody committed to doing it again next year? <laughs> I wonder if this is, uh, we're doing it once and we're done, or does it move around? I mean, is this an annual event that just... Happened to be here this time? Did I lose you, Mac? That room was thinking maybe you got stuck looking at mermaid photos. So what are we doing now? <laughs> you there? Did you hear me? Yeah, I got you. Okay. 
Why uh, with my mic off or what? I, I, we lost you for probably two minutes there. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, now let's see. I think, um, did, did you have a uh, safety story this week? Yes, I do. Actually, okay. you want me to go through it? Sure. Let's go. Okay. This one's called Trapped and Alone Under a Ship. Diver on DPV learns a lesson for life. Tim was making good progress sur- surveying the 40-foot pleasure craft it had sunk quickly after colliding with another boat on the way back to the river marina. The people on board had made it to shore, but now the boat was roughly 50 feet down in the freshwater river. Tim identified several solid places on the boat where he could attach his lift bags and raise it to the surface. He was looking forward to cashing the check for this one, and the insurance company would be happy to make some of their money back. Before heading to the surface, Tim decided to take a quick look at the bow. The boat listed slightly to port where it rested on the bottom, and he wanted to make sure there wasn't a hole in the hull. That would make the recovery more difficult. Tim used a scooter to blow away some of the mud and silt from the river bottom out of the way, but he still couldn't tell if the hull was intact or not. He moved in closer, continuing to blast silt with the scooter, feeling down the side of his boat with his hand, and then the boat shipped. The diver. Tim was 43 years old, in good shape. He was well-known on the river and often helped boaters at the local marina by cleaning hulls, diving to retrieve lost rudders and lower outboard units. He was a technical diver and a dive master with plenty of experience both in freshwater and ocean environment. Now we'll talk about the dive. During a busy weekend on the river, a recreational boater had collided with another vessel, lost control of his large pressure craft, and the boat went down in just a few minutes. The marina owner asked him if he would take a look at the watercraft and see about bringing it to the surface. There was a local commercial diver who was willing to do the job, but it would be a couple of weeks before he could get to it, and he wanted too much money. Tim had never tried to raise anything larger than a boat engine from the river bottom, but he happily accepted the job for about half of what the commercial diver wanted to do. He would have to make several dives to place his lift bags on the boat, then he would make another to fill them all and to bring the boat to the surface. He planned to begin the series of dives the following morning, had a couple of friends coming in to help him with the equipment. Before getting started, Tim decided to make a survey dive, determine how many lift bags he would need, and he didn't ask anyone to come along. The boat had sunk out of the main shipping channel and was marked with a buoy to help other boaters stay away. Tim geared up on shore, swam out from the riverbank to the buoy before he began his descent. He was carrying an underwater scooter to help him maintain its position against the river current and get back to the exit point. He placed his diver down flag on top of the marker buoy and got to work. Now we'll talk about the exit. Tim completed the survey of the sunken pleasure craft, making locations for lift bags on an underwater slate he carried with him. The only thing he left was the hull against the river bottom. Tim checked it out as thoroughly as he could, but the silt and mud river bottom made it difficult to see the impact area. He held into the boat and turned the scooter around, attempting to blow the mud out of the way to get a better look. Without warning, the boat rolled towards Tim, trapping him on the bottom of the river. It took several hours before anyone on the surface noticed Tim's dive flag and called for help. Local fire department's dive team recovered Tim's body about four hours after he began his dive, according to his computer. Now the analysis. Divers are often asked to work on boat to recover small items lost underwater. Most of the time, the diver comes out just fine. In this case, the job was not as simple as recovering the lower unit of an outboard motor dropped from the dock. Tim didn't realize the magnitude of the recovery he had taken on and the danger he had put himself in until it was too late. Commercial divers have surface tenders redundant or surface-applied air sources, and communication systems linking them to their surface port in case they get in trouble. Tim didn't have any of those things. Tim put himself in danger well before any actual recovery work began. 
First, he was making a solo dive without telling anyone or having any sort of surface support. Second, he was improperly using an underwater scooter. When he turned the DPV around to blow away the silt in the mud, it pulled him further underneath the boat and well beyond his diver training. As a technical diver, Tim understood the risk of being in an overhead environment, but he allowed himself to get beneath the boat anyway. Anytime there is something that inhibits direct descent to the surface, the level of complication arises. Probable that Tim's experience and training led him to be overconfident in this and his approach to the survey dive. It's a simple dive to 50 feet, one he'd made many, many times before, only this time he got in trouble and had no support system to help him out. There's no way of knowing what Tim's last minutes were like, but struggling to get free from the entrapment and panicking when he realized he was going to die must have been terrible. Surface support, a dive buddy, even a rope tied to the surface to signal for help might have saved his life. Lessons for life. Avoid overconfidence. You may have dived a site a hundred times before, but adding a new task or skill, make sure you're properly trained. Leave it to the professional. Don't take on commercial diving jobs without the training and support. Three, become a solo diver. If you want to make a solo dive, get the training equipment necessary to do so safely. And fourth, communicate the plan. Let others know your dive plan so they can look for you when you're missed. Establish emergency protocols. And there you have it. Learn from somebody else's mistakes. I certainly agree with that. And once again, we'd like to thank everybody for listening. If you love the show, why not give a a five-star review? Those reviews help people discover the show and continue to listen. And we're on just about any way that you want to listen. Uh, Spotify is about the only place we're not. And uh, it has to do with with our hosting and how Spotify does their service we put in a few times but it doesn't i don't know we'll have to we'll just have to see so other than that we're on stitcher we're on uh, google play we're on itunes uh, so those reviews do help out uh, also you can go to our website www.scubaobsessed.com uh, click around there and you can also look for our fan map put your pin in the fan map and let everybody know where you're listening and uh, we could always use your assistance to keep this on the air. It costs us money to host and uh, for bandwidth and websites and content. So a little bit of tiny expenses, and uh, it's not really a money-making operation. It's just to keep the lights on. So we certainly appreciate any help you can give us. Uh, $3 or more will get you early access to the show notes, which sometimes is the best, especially if I'm forgetting to put them in the chat room. Uh, and I and I do make apologies to the mermaids. I need to uh, set up an appointment. There's a couple who showed some interest, and we'll try and get them on the on the show. Uh, Mac, you have anything you want to plug? Uh, let's see. I don't think we have anything major coming up right now. So, other than our normal items, support your local dive shop because they don't have them. You don't have that local shop. You're not going to have any local air. And don't forget to visit your local libraries when you're doing your research, especially during the winter. They're a wealth of information. Well, I think we are to that time of the show. Are you ready? Ever ready. And this one is again from uh, Rod. And uh, according to him, it's one of the worst that he has sent us in a while. So we'll just have to see if it holds up. We'll be the judge of that. The highway authority, or excuse me, I said highway authority. The highways agency found over 200 dead cows. On State Highway 4 recently, there's concern that they may have died from avian flu. Pathologists examined the remains of all crows, and to everyone's relief, confirmed the problem was not avian flu. The cause of death appeared to be from... Oh, crap. Let me start over. Did I say cows? (laughs) 
Yes, you said cows. <laughs> you meant crows? Yes. Oh, goodness. The highway agency found over 200 dead crows in the state highway four recently, and there was concern that they <laughs> just... <laughs> I'm just picturing all these... Wait, when you get to the end of the joke, go back and think of cows. <laughs> the highway agency found over 200 dead crows in the state highway four recently. There was concern that they had died from avian flu. Pathologists examined the remain of all the crows, and everyone's relief to confirm the problem was not avian flu. The cause of death appeared to be vehicular impacts. Over during analysis, has noted that varying colors of paints appeared on the birds' beaks and claws. By analyzing the paint residues, they found that 98% of the crows had been killed by the impacts with motorbikes. Only 2% were killed by cars. The agency then hired an uh, Ornoth, one of those bird behavior guys, and determined that the cause was disproportionate percentage of motorbike kills versus car kills. The behaviorists quickly concluded that, that crows eat roadkill, and they always have a lookout crow to warn of danger. They discovered that while all the lookout crows could say caw, not a single one could say bike. <laughs> now, now go back. And, could have been. Could have been. Yeah, with it. Yeah. I was thinking you were going to say tractor trailer <laughs> collided with something and cows were everywhere. I, you, and I pre-read it. I don't know how I came up with cows. <laughs> Do you have your your normal liquid refreshments? Yeah, actually, I did. Uh, I did. Uh, I don't know a good thing or a bad thing this last weekend. Uh, uh, we had finally joined uh, Costco. You know, we had been Sam's Club members for years, and then finally, you know, probably five or six years ago, it was one of the things that we gave up. And the way that we used to do all those membership clubs is, is you do them for a year. You 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 join one December. And then you go all the way to the next December, so you, you can basically because that seemed to be when we buy stuff. You know, it was gifts for the holidays, uh, so we hadn't been a member for a long time, and we needed an air conditioner, a window air conditioner. So we thought, ah, we'll we'll go down there and see what the prices are. And we shopped around, and and with just the deals they're getting you to sign up, it pretty much paid for the membership and the and the savings. So now we're in all sorts of craziness, and the long version of the short story is that they had. Uh, Big bottles of rum for $18, so I think I've only drank about $6 worth, so that should be pretty good. So until next time, go out there and get wet. And stay safe and have a good time doing it.